Hello, and welcome to the Fi-Fi, your favorite source for rapid-fire board game reviews. In this episode, Sarah returns to the woodland with Root, the Marauder expansion, I simulate the World War I invasion of Belgium in Brave Little Belgium, Lydia chucks dice for combat in Dice Throne, and Mason gets you to guess words in concept. But first, Ruth unlocks the secrets of Kodinka. Hello, 5 by listeners, it's Ruth here. This time around, I wanted to talk about one of my favorite abstract games, and as a bonus, it's a game I don't see mentioned very often, so why not bring it up? Designed by Leonard Boyd and David Bradshaw, Kadinka is loosely themed around unlocking the secret entrance to a hidden temple. What you actually get is a delightful pattern matching and manipulation 2-4 player game that offers a lot of puzzly goodness in a compact, well-produced package. Originally published by Backspindle Games in a small run in 2012 and then re-released by the company on a larger scale in 2016, Kadinka is a game that I picked up on a whim only to discover it contained an excellent two-player experience that travels extremely well to a variety of settings. Part of that extreme portability is the fact that Kadinka is comprised of just 16 tiles and two small decks of circular cards. Each player selects one of the four tile colors, and their goal is to get their tiles to match the patterns shown on their four key cards. However, all 16 tiles are laid out in a shared 4x4 grid, and so as each player attempts to move the tiles around to match their own goals, they'll be interfering with the positions of their opponent's tiles. With the winner being the first player to match all four of their patterns, Kadinka is a race to the finish. And things can get a little heated, but luckily it plays in such a short time frame, just 15 to 30 minutes, that you can easily call for a rematch. The key patterns that players are trying to match come in four types, and each player begins the game with one of each. A straight line of four, a diagonal line of four, a two-by-two block, and the four corners of a square. What makes the keys differ are the colors. You see, each tile has a symbol engraved on its faces, and that symbol is white on one side and gold on the other. To match a key pattern, the arrangement of white and gold faces of your tiles has to match, not just the layout. This means you know what patterns your opponent has to create, and as they progress which patterns they have left, but not the exact configuration they're looking for. So you can guess at how close they are, but there's always a degree of uncertainty. In order to make their patterns, players will get two actions per turn, some combination of switching adjacent tiles or flipping single tiles over. In addition to these standard actions, players can also spend one or more spirit cards in order to take additional special actions. Spirit card actions involve rotating a 2 by 2 section of the display, taking a tile from one end of a row and pushing it in from the other end to shift everything over by one, or revealing the trap side of the card. Revealing a trap means displaying a 4 by 4 pattern next to the display display, and then flipping as many tiles as is necessary to match the pattern of white and gold shown on the card, really mixing things up on the table. These spirit cards are incredibly powerful, but each player starts with just three of them, and they cannot earn more during the game. So they'll have to figure out whether a given turn is actually a good time to deploy a card, or would it be better to save them for later, perhaps for helping make those last few patterns when a potential win is in sight. And there is one other critical rule in Kadinka that I have to mention. At no point can you just immediately reverse the last action taken by the player before you. This forces players to find other ways around the actions of their opponents and stops the game bogging down at the end into a cycle of constant reversal. Eventually, someone finds a way to make their last pattern and declares themselves the winner. And it usually happens quickly enough to ensure the game doesn't outstay its welcome. 
Now, as I mentioned, Kadinka does play up to four players. However, I have only ever played it with two. It's a wonderful two-player game as you and your opponent try to work around the changes each other is making to the display. Playing with a single opponent lets you really track what patterns they have left and what moves they seem to be focused on, letting you try to get into each other's heads. Now, playing with three or four is something I would like to try in non-pandemic times, but I am a little wary of how chaotic things could get with multiple people affecting the display between your turns, making it hard to plan ahead. Kadinka is a perfect travel game. It comes in a small box size to fit just its contents, and it's a box that can be easily transported in a bag or a large pocket. Plus, with a magnetic closure, that box is going to stay closed. Not only that, but the starting tile setup is shown on the inside of the lid for easy reference without having to unfold the admittedly also small roll sheet. The game itself has a footprint that fits on the tiniest of tables, like those found in cafes, on airplanes, or when distraction is needed in places like hospital rooms. But despite the game's small form factor, the engraved tiles have decent body and thickness to them, making them satisfying to flip and move around. And those circular cards, while odd to shuffle and a little thin, are coated. That coating, plus having tiles rather than tokens, makes Kadinka a game that can survive outdoor play or the odd spilled beverage without too much trouble. With a two-player game likely being more on the 15 side of that 15 to 30 minute playtime, the production being so lovely, and the game being available for about 15 US dollars or 12 pounds through the publisher's website, Kadinka's a great option for fans of abstract games and puzzles. It looks and feels great while offering a surprising amount of interesting decision-making as you attempt to figure out how to manipulate the board in as few moves as possible. The limited but oh-so-powerful spirit cards can make or break your game, and I especially enjoy the challenge of deciding when and how to use them. If any of this sounds interesting, there is a free print-and-play available on BoardGameGeek and an online implementation of the game on Tabletopia, so consider giving it a go. Just know you're not getting the full clicky-clacky tile experience. Until next time, stay safe out there, and feel free to share your favorite abstracts with me. You can find me on Twitter at Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. When Root was published in 2018, its adorable woodland setting and carefully balanced asymmetric system made it the war game for people who think they don't like war games. Well, it's the war game for this person who doesn't like war games. I'm not into high-conflict games, but somehow I love Root. And today I'm talking about the upcoming Root Marauder expansion. This review assumes that you're familiar with the Root base game, but if you want to know more, check out the Five Buys previous review way back in episode 42 by... Oh yeah, that was me. Root's Marauder expansion is the second expansion, following last year's Underworld expansion. The Marauder expansion was designed by Cole Worley and Patrick Leder and features the charming art by Kyle Farron that has been such a big part of Root's appeal. The Marauder expansion will launch on Kickstarter on February 23rd, a week after this episode drops. Thanks to Leader Games for sending me a prototype so I could try the game out for this review. Like the Underworld expansion, the Marauder expansion adds two new factions to the mix, the Rats and the Badgers. The Rats are fighters, led by a warlord who's so moody, you get to choose a different mood for him every turn. Their goal is to eradicate the enemy. Literally, they score points not just by ruling clearings, but completely removing opponent species from them. And they do that with an action called Scorch that lets them scorch the earth. 
Like real rats, the rat faction hoards items. Not to use them, but a larger item hoard does allow the rats to take more actions and spread across the board faster. The other new faction is the Badgers, an order of knights who gain points by finding and recovering holy relics. While the Badgers can battle, it isn't their primary goal. Ruling clearings makes it easier for them to recover relics. It's a means to an end for them. The Badgers wear armor. In the illustration, it looks like high-quality plate. And the armor allows them to ignore the first hit against them in battle. This is a balancing mechanism. Without it, the more high-conflict factions might find the Badgers easy targets. But it also supports the Badgers' in-game story as an order of holy knights who, like actual orders of holy knights you can probably think of from European history, their main focus is on collecting wealth. They're rich, so they wear expensive armor, so they're a difficult target. This attention to thematic detail is one of the things I love best about Root. The game creates a world that, no matter how fanciful, always feels vivid and somehow real. I like that one of the new factions in the Marauder expansion is very high conflict, and one really isn't. Both factions require playing smart, but the Badgers feel more thoughtful. The Rats win by overwhelming the board, kind of brute-forcing it. The Badgers are all about planning ahead and executing those killer combos that rack up a bunch of points no one even realized you could get. With a game as deeply asymmetric as Root, a big part of the fun is discovering how the game feels from every angle. How does this faction interact with that one? What about when these other two are also in the game? You want to try out every combination and see how they all fit together. The pitfall is that once you've tried every combination, it can feel like you've learned everything there is to learn. It's smart of leader games to release new factions periodically, to keep Root feeling fresh. Besides the Rats and the Badgers, the Marauders expansion also adds a hireling mechanism. These are cards, loosely based on the existing factions, that grant an additional ability to players. The hirelings are mainly there to add complexity, which is useful in two-player games, which can lack some of the extreme asymmetric interaction that's such a big part of Root. However, I suspect it yields diminishing returns with larger games of Root that are already extremely complex. If you're a jaded Root expert looking for a new challenge, you may enjoy a six-player game with hirelings, but for me, I think this is a case of more not equaling better. My favorite part of the hirelings mechanism is the new initiative card. It's only for two-player games, and if you capture the initiative card, you become the start player, which effectively means you take two turns in a row. This is powerful. You can set up a killer move and execute it immediately. No sitting there watching your opponent swoop in, capture that clearing you really needed, and mess up everything you'd planned. I've seen games completely turn around with clever use of the initiative card. And it's easier to take initiative if you're behind in scoring, so it acts as a nice balancing mechanism for a two-player game. Speaking of two-player... The Rat and Badger factions were designed to play well against each other head-to-head -head in a two-player game. This is great because in my experience, base game route for two people is fine, but doesn't work as well as I think the game does with higher player counts. For the past year, solo or two-player has been my only option for in-person board games, and even before that, I mainly played two-player. I found the Rats and Badgers a solid, well-balanced two-player game, and it's wonderful that Root put this effort into creating a great two-player experience. Of course, with the Kickstarter launching on February 23rd, the Marauder expansion won't be out for a while. I don't know the projected release date, but I hope that by then we'll be able to play games in person again. Gosh, I hope so. But even still, I'll probably still end up playing mainly two-player games. 
So an expansion that makes one of my favorite games better with two people is a great addition for me. And that's Root, the Marauder expansion. My name is Sarah. Look me up on Twitter at Sarah Ovenall. Especially if you have cute stories about real rats and badgers. Then I really want to hear from you. Did you know that rats make excellent pets? Every so often, there's a discussion online about how to bring in more diversity to wargaming and how to make wargames more accessible. There isn't enough time on this podcast segment to address the first issue, but for the second one, having a rulebook that isn't the length of a novella helps immensely. For gamers who don't play wargames, there's nothing else more daunting, well, other than a grumpy grognard on your table, than opening up a new wargame, seeing a million chits, and a 50-page rulebook. Luckily, Publishers like Hollenspiel, which specializes in military history games, offers one such game that's perfect for gamers who want to dip their toe into the proverbial wargaming pool. Brave Little Belgium, designed by Ryan Heilman and David Shaw, is a quick-playing two-player wargame that came out in 2019 and plays in about an hour. The game comes with a map sheet of Belgium, 8 dice, and 88 chit counters. The game is a great introduction to popular wargaming mechanisms such as chits, and chit pulls, and the rulebook is an easily digestible and understandable eight pages. The game takes place during World War I. Germany has declared war on France and needs to plow through Belgium, which declared itself neutral, but is now working with allies to try to hold off those German forces. One player plays as Germany, while the other plays as the Entente forces, which consists of Belgium, French, and British troops. The game takes place over at least six turns, max eight, The setup is probably the hardest part of the game, that is if you don't know your Belgium geography. Chits are separated by armies, and stacks of them are placed at various points on the map. There's a handy-dandy diagram on the back of the rulebook, which I'd missed the first time I played and couldn't help but laugh at myself when I realized it existed. There are also fort markers that are placed at the fort locations. Lastly, guard civic chits are randomly placed face down across cities and towns on the map by rolling two dice and consulting the chart on the player map sheet. The Army General's chits that start at the beginning of the game are placed in a cup of your choosing, as well as three turn-end chits and special events chits that favor each player. A couple other Army Generals are placed at the turn track, meaning that when that turn starts, they get thrown into the cup for the potential for their army to activate. Chit pulls are a popular wargaming mechanism. You randomly draw a chit from the cup, and then that army activates. When three turn-end chits are pulled out, the turn ends. Sometimes that happens much faster or longer than you anticipated, which contributes to the tension of the game. There's nothing like staring at your opponent and dramatically pulling out the exact chit that you need. Army forces are split into two types, infantry and cavalry. Infantry have two movement points, while cavalry have four movement points. Movement across the map takes one movement point between straight lines or two movement points between squiggly lines. When an army enters a location that contains their opponent's chit, a battle occurs. Players then move their chits to the battle section of the map sheet and separate their troops based on their combat factor. The chits are all clearly marked with a picture of a die that represent that. Both players roll dice and hand out hits accordingly. The battle box is actually quite handy and makes it easy to understand how the battles work. For example, a unit with a combat factor of 5 has to roll a 5 or higher on the roll to successfully hit their opponent. To apply losses to your armies, you either turn the chit over, revealing a weaker army unit, or remove them from the game. When battles occur at a fort, the fort will roll a number of dice based on each step it possesses, and it needs to roll a 5 or higher to hit. As a fort takes hits, and this is after all the army units have been depleted around them, it loses a step and its turn counterclockwise to indicate that. 
To win, the German player must destroy a fort at Liege, destroy a fort at Namur, and occupy a city on the other side of the victory line on the western side of the map sheet with an infantry unit. The German player must complete these objectives by the August 19-21 to turn. If the German completes these objectives after that turn on August 22-24, to then the game is a draw. If the German player does this on the final turn of the game, the August 25th through 27th, then it is the Entente victory. To summarize, the longer the Entente player can hold off the German forces, the better. There is one other way the German player can lose. When three turn-end chits are pulled and the turn ends, the German player can activate any armies that didn't get activated during that turn. But they must roll a die first, and if they roll a 4, 5, or 6, they commit an atrocity and move up the atrocity track. The German player then moves their army like a regular activation. If the German player commits five atrocities, they immediately lose the game. If you're vaguely interested in checking out a war game but don't know where to start, then Brave Little Belgium is a good one to check out for an hour-long game of battles, strategic movement, chit-pulling, and dice rolling. It's a classic David versus Goliath situation. The Belgian troops are small and spread out at the beginning, and the German forces are coming in hot and heavy, and it makes for a satisfying win when the Belgian army holds them off. I also particularly appreciate how you're eased into the game with the introduction more French and British troops each upcoming turn. And that's Brave Little Belgium. This is Meeple Lady for the 5 by. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Meeple Lady, or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye! Welcome to Lydia's Educational Game Corner, where I take a moment to showcase my game of the day and give you tips on how you can use it in your classroom or educational space in about five minutes. So, let's get started! Today's game of the day is Dice Throne by Roxley Games, designed by Nate Chatelier and Manny Trembling. Artwork also by Manny Trembling. Dice Throne is a fast-paced combat dice game where you choose from a variety of heroes that will battle other opponents by rolling dice, which activates abilities using your hero's unique set of five dice. Each player starts with 50 health points and easy to play in four easy steps. One, choose your favorite hero. There are 16 heroes in County that offer a wide range of diversity and complexity levels from players to choose from, making it so everyone can find a piece of themselves in the character selection. Step two, roll your hero's dice three times to activate the abilities. Step 3. Upgrade abilities and play action cards to surprise your foe. Number 4. And the last step. Defeat your opponents and take the Iron Throne. I had to put a Game of Thrones reference in because I mean, who wouldn't? Dice Throne is a wonderful game to bring into your 2021 space. But before I get into some tips on how you can, how you, yes, you listening, here are a few important things to keep in mind before bringing Dice Throne into your learning space. First, timing. How long do you have to play the game and teach it? Dice Throne is a medium-length game with an estimated playing time of 20 to 40 minutes according to BoardGameGeek. You can always do a session zero where you break down the game, show tutorials as needed, and check for understanding with the players to make sure everyone is on the same page before playing. You can also create player aids for players to follow along and use time for the first playthrough to get used to the game and allow the time for questions. Please note, there is never a bad question, so make sure to prep your gameplay with the expectation that if you have questions, ask them. Next, the theme. The theme of Dice Throne is a combination of dice rolling, fantasy, gaining power, combat, dice game. The main goal is to beat your opponents to gain the throne. I mean, who wouldn't want to roll in victory? Remember, you also have to consider the age and grade before introducing a game to players. 
Dice Throne is a strategic dice game that could prove a little challenging for youth under the age of 11, especially with understanding all the mechanisms and special rules that are required before rolling dice. I recommend grade levels of 6th grade and up would be a perfect fit for this game. And lastly, modifications. Not everyone learns at the same level and rate as others, so please keep that in mind when introducing the game to players and don't be afraid to modify the game to fit the group you're playing with. Definitely make a player aid or have a Google slide presentation of what you can do during a turn. Tag teaming would be great for this game because it can be overwhelming to try and figure out what would be the best move to take, as well as use your partner to plan the best way to use the dice to get your opponent's hit points quickly down. Also, it allows players to strategically work together and collaborate to have the best possible outcome in the game. All right, everyone. This part of our time together is where I share about how dice thrown in the classroom or in your educational space can be used. Not only can board games be for fun, but they can also provide a great learning experience. Dice throw can really excel in the math-based classes. Rolling the dice and using the results to figure out what is the best result to take allows players to have a refresher on basic math concepts as A plus B equals C, as well as strategically keeping in mind that these multi-step dice depending on which to keep, can be successful towards meeting your goal or doing a step back watching other players get closer to victory. If I did this in my drama classroom, I would have my kiddos do a monologue which describe the background of their character they're choosing and then present a presentation about it, as well as my kiddos in public speaking, doing a demonstration speech, talking about the steps on how to place Dice Throne and also introduce those rules and see if they know how to play the game well. Well, everyone, there are so many things to do, but so little time. But hopefully these tips will help you begin your journey of bringing the education into your gaming experience. Thank you for tuning in to Lydia's Educational Game Corner. Till next time, happy learning and happy gaming. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about concept. There are a lot of party games in the world, and a lot of them have been just sitting on our shelves for the last 10 months, especially games that work best with a large group. One of those games, Concept, has been collecting dust for a while here in our house, but fortunately it's available to play online as it looks like game nights are going to be over Zoom for a while still. Many party games are generative. Um, Charades, monikers, taboo, telestrations, times ups, categories, and the list goes on. They require you to come up with new information or to know enough about the world around you to create something based on a suggestion or a prompt. I love generative games, but they're definitely not for everyone. Fewer party games, though, are interpretive. Uh, You're most likely already familiar with Codenames, probably the most popular interpretive party game in Hobby Tabletop today. If you've never played it, go back and listen to Mike's great segment on Codenames Duet in episode 18. Uh, The duet version, by the way, is still my favorite way to play it. But Concept, from Repos, now owned, of course, by the juggernaut Asmodee, predates Codenames by a couple of years, and while the two have some things in common, Concept clicks over a different set of tumblers in my brain. In Concept, you are trying to get your teammates to guess a hidden word based on clues. Pretty standard, right? Except that the clues aren't words, they're pictures. Oh, like Pictionary? No, you're not drawing, the pictures are already printed on the board. You have pawns and cubes that you're placing on the board to tell your teammates what you mean. The pawn is a primary idea, and then the cubes are descriptors for that idea. So if the clue was pizza, you might put a primary idea pawn, that's a big green question mark, on a picture of food, and then a green cube on the circle over in the shape section. So what you're saying to the other players is, this is a round food. 
if nobody gets it right away, and they probably would, but who knows, you might want to put one of the sub-idea pawns, let's say the blue exclamation point, on the picture of scissors, and then eight blue cubes on the triangle in the shape section. So now what you're saying is, food that is round, cut into eight triangles. If they still didn't get it, you might try adding another sub-idea. Let's say the yellow pawn on the picture of the earth with a flag in it, which means location or country or place, but people often use for flag colors. So you put one yellow cube on each of the red, green, and white color spaces. You might even want to put them on in the order that those colors appear on the Italian flag, green, then white, then red. If nobody still guesses pizza after that, I don't know, get new friends. So this all sounds fairly simple, and in theory it is. Uh, Basically anyone can have a fun time using the easy words on the cards. You can keep score, you can play competitively team versus team, and especially if you're playing with your friends over Zoom and Board Game Arena, uh, it just keeps score for you automatically. But like a lot of great party games, you don't really care who wins or loses. On the other hand, because there are scoring rules, it satisfies that dude you know who's only willing to play something if there is a winner and a loser. Concept has a lot going for it, not the least of which that there is a right answer. My dislike of vote for whichever answer is the funniest games has been fairly well documented on this show, so I won't belabor that point, but it's worth knowing that the right answer here is usually a little easier to come by than in code names. There's no sudden death, and one wrong answer or bad clue can't lose it for everyone. The only rule is that the clue giver can't talk. It taps into a different kind of problem-solving and decision-making center than other hidden information games, but it's possible that this kind of thinking may not be a hit with everyone. One of our dearest friends, who is not the epithet gamer, but comes over for game night, when we still have them anyway, is incredibly smart and usually very good at games. Explain the rules once and she's ready to go. Usually beats me, but I'm also notably bad at board games. So a couple of years ago I thought, oh boy, concept's going to go over really well, this is going to be a huge hit after I got it on sale. Friends, I was not prepared. Uh, She was very obviously struggling and not at all enjoying the game. I thought a lot after that game night about why it went over so badly. I think it comes down to simply, my brain doesn't work this way. An example from my own life is that I'm embarrassingly bad at puzzles. They frustrate me, I get bored and restless, and I take little satisfaction from doing them. Megan loves them, and we often do them together, and I like doing them because I'm doing something with her, but the kind of analytics and spatial reasoning that jigsaw puzzles require, I just don't have. Similarly, I think if you're not a visual thinker, and I very much am, concept might just be a dud for you. It might make you mad and sad and frustrated. But if you are a visual thinker, I think it's probably the best interpretive party game out there. You can jump into a game on BoardGameArena.com, but my hunch is that you'll like concept enough to buy a physical copy for when everyone is vaxxed and we get to see each other in person again. The physical product is well made, and while not cheap, it's about $30 online, it's probably something that will stay in your collection forever and ever. So, who should play Concept? People who like quiet games, there's not a lot of talking, people who like figuring things out, and people who like code names, oh, and also people who like being super frustrated. I give Concept 3 out of 3 art, idea, heart. I'm Mason Weaver, you can find me on Twitter and occasionally Instagram at Discount Compost, and on Board Game Geek and Board Game Arena as Breakfast Core. Wear a mask and wash your hands. You've been listening to The 5 by your bi-weekly source of rapid-fire board game reviews and proud member of the Inside Voices Network. Follow us on Twitter at 5 by Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 by Games. Join our BGG Guild number 2810. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Or visit our website at 5 
If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash 5 games. From all of us at the 5 by thanks for listening. <laughs>